Welcome to OCS Field Guide, the podcast that helps you study smarter for the OCS exam. Hello and welcome back to the OCS Field Guide podcast. Today we are covering the 2017 revision of the Hip Pain and Mobility Deficits Hip Osteoarthritis CPG. Before we jump into the episode, I do want to remind you of our Patreon group, where you can engage with us directly with questions, access exclusive content and study aids for high-value information areas, join live study sessions, and access recordings of our previous study sessions. Your support through Patreon allows us to keep this podcast pretty much ad-free, except for this shameless plug, and makes us able to carve out time from our families and full-time jobs to make this podcast. Thanks to all of you for making this possible. Without further self-promotion, let's talk about hips that don't often lie, ones with osteoarthritis. We'll start with a quick overview of the most boring part of all CPGs, impairment and function-based diagnosis. Hip OA is the most common cause of hip pain in older adults. The pathoanatomic features of hip OA involve articular changes, including focal lesions and decreased cartilage volume, as well as changes to subchondral and periarticular bone. The presence of acetabular retroversion is also related to the development of hip OA. The natural history of hip OA is not completely understood, but we know it involves changes both inside and outside the joint resulting in loss of joint space, development of osteophytes, subchondral sclerosis and cysts, loss of joint range of motion, and weakness in the muscles around the hip joint. Total hip arthroplasty is the most common surgical intervention for end-stage hip OA, but there is no consensus on timing of surgery for hip OA. Non-surgical intervention should always be attempted, and it is suggested that non-surgical intervention has failed if there is not a significant reduction in symptoms, such as improvement of 20 to 25% on the WOMAC. The progression of hip OA varies widely from patient to patient, and thus therapists should monitor objective measures such as range of motion, strength, pain, outcome score, joint space width, and Kelgren-Lawrence grades to aid in decision-making regarding timing or necessity of surgery. The risk factors to look out for for hip OA include increased age, history of developmental disorders such as dysplasia, previous hip joint injury, reduced hip range of motion, especially in internal rotation, presence of osteophytes, lower socioeconomic status, higher bone mass, and higher BMI. Here is the part to be sure to remember. The diagnosis of hip OA and the ICF classification of hip pain with mobility deficits should be made with the following criteria. Patient over the age of 50, moderate anterior or lateral hip pain during weight-bearing activities, morning stiffness less than one hour, hip internal rotation range of motion of less than 24 degrees, or hip internal rotation and hip flexion 15 degrees less than the non-painful side, and or hip pain provoked with passive hip internal rotation. The differential diagnosis section of this CPG is trash, and pretty much says if they do not present with this presentation and or don't improve with appropriate interventions, you should consider other diagnoses. Thanks. 
So I'll throw my own recommendations here. I would be looking out for the other very common hip pain in older adults, which David has covered in another podcast, greater trochanteric pain syndrome, or whatever you want to call it today especially because both can have pain at the lateral hip with weight-bearing activity and occur more in older adults. It would also be relatively common to have someone with radiographic evidence of hip OA to be relatively asymptomatic for their hip OA, but have a very symptomatic greater trochanteric pain syndrome. I'm sure we've all seen the patient that got a hip replacement for their lateral hip pain, which was still very present following since it was actually trochanteric pain. Again, for classification of hip pain with mobility deficits, we are looking for a combination of age over 50, moderate anterior or lateral hip pain with weight bearing, but not isolated trochanteric pain, morning stiffness less than one hour, hip internal rotation less than 24 degrees, or internal rotation and flexion 15 degrees less than the non-painful side, and or increased hip pain with passive hip internal rotation. For imaging, we are primarily looking at radiographs for diagnosing and assessing the progression of hip OA. In radiographs, the things we're looking for most are the level of joint space narrowing, presence of osteophytes, and subchondral sclerosis or cysts. Let's move on to examination. For self-reported outcome measures, they recommend using measures that include pain, functional impairment, activity limitation, and participation restriction as always. They recommend using the WOMAC, the pain subscale for pain, and the physical function subscale for activity limitation and participation restriction. The WOMAC is by far the most well-researched tool that they mentioned, so I would definitely learn this one. It is a measure of disability though, so higher scores are worse, and it is expressed as a percentage typically, though the measure is out of 96. They just try to be complicated. For the tool as a whole, the MCID ranges from 12 to 22%, so if a patient decreases their score and amount anywhere in that range, you can be confident improvement in a condition has been made. So highlight the WOMAC as one of the measures that you want to be lower rather than higher. The other tools they recommend for hip OA are the brief pain inventory, pain pressure threshold, and the visual analog scale. For activity limitation, other than the WOMAC, they recommend the hip disability and osteoarthritis outcome score, or the HOOS, and the LEFS, and the Harris hip score. For all three of these, higher scores mean better function and better symptoms. The only MCID I would memorize from those is the LEFS, which is a 9-point change out of 80. They give an A-level recommendation for the use of any of these, and specifically that you should have both a pain and an activity limitation measure. Now for physical performance measures. They recommend a number of different performance measures. I would not personally spend time knowing all the MCDs and cut scores for all of them, but do know what each test is and what it is focusing most on, such as balance, direction change, strength, endurance, speed, etc. They give an A-level recommendation to use measures such as the 6-minute walk test, 30-second chair stand, stair measure, timed up and go, self-paced walk, timed single leg stance, 
Foursquare step test and the step test. If I were writing a question on this information, I would present a case and a partial exam that included a couple of these and then ask based on the case which other performance measure would be most appropriate to add. You'd be looking to add the measure that best fit the history and gave a more complete picture of the patient. For instance, if they already had the 30-second chair stand and gait speed, I probably wouldn't choose the tug. You would be better to pick something like time single-leg stance, which would obviously capture static balance, the four-square step test, which would capture direction change and dynamic balance, or the step test, which would capture stepping up. Your selection would then be based on what the history information made you think was most important for the case. They also give a separate A-level recommendation for using a balance measure specific for predicting fall risk in this population. Recommended balance tests include the Berg balance scale, four-square step test, and single-leg balance. The Berg balance scale is for sure one to know. The cut score for fall risk is 50 or below, and a score of 40 or below has nearly 100% fall risk. So these people have to have an assistive device. For the objective examination, they give an A-level recommendation that over an episode of care, you should document the Faber or Patrick's test and passive hip range of motion and muscle strength in all planes. They go on to give a best practice recommendation on the minimum that should be included in the whole exam for all patients with hip OA for standardization, which clues us in on what they think is most important. They say to use the WOMAC physical function subscale for a self-report measure. For physical performance, they say to at least include the six-minute walk test, the 30-second chair stand, the tug, and the stair measure, which is just timing going up and down nine steps. Then for physical impairment measures, at least include range of motion and strength for all planes of the hip, interrotation, externotation, flexion, extension, abduction, and adduction. Use the NPRS for a pain rating and assess joint irritability with the Faber test. That is the minimum they say to include in all examinations for HIPOA. Now it's time for interventions. I have this content structured in order of strength of recommendation, so we'll go with the strongest first. Number one, manual therapy gets an A level recommendation. Manual therapy should be used for patients with mild to moderate hip OA that have impairments and should consist of thrust and non-thrust and soft tissue mobilization. Dosage can range from 1 to 3 times per week over 6 to 12 weeks. This is strengthened from a B-level recommendation in the 2009 CPG, which was also limited to being used for short-term benefit. Not only is manual therapy strengthened to an A, but they do not constrain this recommendation to short-term benefit only. However, they do include that as hip range of motion improves, clinicians should add exercises including stretching and strengthening to augment and sustain gains in range of motion, flexibility, and strength. 
This brings us to our other A-level recommendation, flexibility, strengthening, and endurance exercise. Note that this exercise recommendation is specific to flexibility, strength, and endurance, and there is a separate recommendation for functional gait and balance training. The recommendation states clinicians should use individualized flexibility, strengthening, and endurance exercise to address impairments in hip range of motion, specific muscle weaknesses, and limited thigh or hip muscle flexibility. This can be given in group-based settings, but effort needs to be made to individualize to each patient's relevant physical impairments. Proper dosage should range from 1 to 5 times per week for 6 to 12 weeks. Now for our first B-level recommendation, patient education combined with exercise and or manual therapy. They recommend education include teaching activity modification, exercise, and supporting weight reduction when somebody is overweight, and methods of unloading the arthritic joints. Note that this only has significant effect when used in combination with exercise and or manual therapy. Now for modalities. Our other B-level recommendation is actually for ultrasound, so put this on your very short list of conditions where ultrasound is recommended. Clinicians may use ultrasound at 1 MHz, 1 Watt per centimeter squared. Here's the key, though. You have to do it for 5 minutes each on the anterior, lateral, and posterior hip, so not just the 7 minutes plus setup to get your build time in. (laughs) This is only to be given in addition to exercise and hot packs and only for short-term management of pain and activity limitation. However, the recommended dosage based on one strong study is that this is given in 10 sessions over a two-week period. So if you can hit it every weekday for two weeks with hot packs and exercise, you go for it. Maybe it is effective at a lower dosage, but we just don't have studies to support that. The first C-level recommendation is for functional gait and balance training. They recommend clinicians should provide impairment-based training for functional movements, gait, balance, and proper use of assistive devices when limitations in these areas are observed and documented. There is a second C-level recommendation in this category specifically recommending that prescription of these therapeutic activities should be based on a patient's individual values, activity participation, and daily functions. This is based on a study that showed long-term improvement in self-reported physical activity level when a patient had rehab focused on a specific favorite recreational activity. So the takeaway from both of these is to include functional training, but make it very specific to the patient's impairments, values, and needs. Now for weight loss, which gets a C-level recommendation. For patients with HIPOA who are obese or overweight, clinicians should collaborate with physicians, nutritionists, or dietitians to support weight reduction. Now, this is only in addition to providing exercise intervention. To recap, we are going to rule in patients to this category who have anterior and lateral hip pain with weight bearing, morning stiffness less than an hour, 
hip internal rotation less than 24 degrees or internal rotation and flexion 15 degrees less than the non-painful side, increased hip pain with passive hip internal rotation, and absence of history and presentation that would be inconsistent with hip osteoarthritis. With these patients, we should use self-reported measures like the WOMAC, LEFS, HOOS, and the Harris Hip Scale, and we should use activity-based testing such as the Berg, Tug, Stair Measure, Self-Paced Walk Test, Four-Square test, Step Test, the Step Test, Time Single Leg Stance, 30-Second Chair Stand, and the Six-Minute Walk. We should get impairment measures including the Faber and Scour Tests, active and passive range of motion in all planes, and hip abduction and extension strength and motor control. We should treat these patients with a focus on manual therapy, flexibility, strengthening, and endurance exercise, all of which gets an A-level recommendation with a dosage recommendation of 6 to 12 weeks with 1 to 3 times a week for manual therapy and 1 to 5 times a week for exercise. We can also use patient education combined with manual therapy and exercise, which gets that B-level recommendation. Oddly enough, we can also do ultrasound, which has a B-level recommendation for its use, provided you spend a crazy amount of time doing it. Finally, especially where indicated, we can do functional training, gait and balance, and collaborative weight loss approaches, which all get a C-level recommendation. Let's finish up with a short practice question. A 60-year-old female presents to physical therapy for treatment of left hip pain. She reports a three-year history of hip pain without any mechanism of injury. She has pain with prolonged sitting, walking, and going upstairs. Her pain is worse when she first gets up in the morning or after being inactive for more than 30 minutes. Objective examination reveals left compensated Trendelenburg gait and left manual muscle testing of 4 minus out of 5 and painful for abduction, external rotation, and extension. Which of the following additional findings would most decrease suspicion of hip OA? A. A history of hip dysplasia. B. Left hip internal rotation range of motion of 30 degrees. C. A BMI of 24 or D, lateral hip pain with weight bearing? The correct answer here is going to be B, left hip internal rotation range of motion of 30 degrees. Remember, one of our diagnostic criteria is having hip internal rotation of less than 24 degrees. A history of hip dysplasia should actually increase our suspicion for this person having developed hip osteoarthritis. A BMI of 24 tells us that this person is not overweight, and D, lateral hip pain with weight bearing, although when we think of lateral hip pain, we typically think more of trochanteric pain, but hip OA can hurt both anterior and laterally with weight bearing. So this is not going to be a strong criteria to lead us away from hip OA. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and happy studying. Thanks for listening to OCS Field Guide. Don't forget to subscribe and then head to physiofieldguide.com for practice questions and more resources.